It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 4th, 2018, the Lost His Mind edition. I am David Potts of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. Happy New Year to all. We haven't been with you for two weeks. I haven't been with John Dickerson for two weeks, but here he is. Hello, John Dickerson Hi, of CBS David. and Space the Nation. Although, I must say, people feel like they've been with us maybe even more deeply than before since the response to the Conundrum show has been really elemental elemental what conundrum most spoke to people that you heard about i heard from somebody who um i guess you would plot on a on a different side of the ideological spectrum from you but who found themselves constantly agreeing with you called you even your their spirit animal so uh i just you know i'm just saying i it may not have been one individual element of the conundrum show but the entire that's so prestige. great that that listener you just know that as your spirit animal i am wearing a tail a very furry plotsy and tail also joining us, hello, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in New Haven. Hello, and Happy New Year. Happy New Can Year. Can still say that? It's still the beginning of January, oh, yeah. right? Did you guys have a great uh, <laughs> holiday? I saw yes, you actually. briefly, Emily. You right I know, that Christmas. was such a nice moment it was, in yeah, You were in cold part of the country. And so was David. Yes, Vermont was really, really freezing, but I still managed to go outside, which felt like a great victory to me since I'm not someone who cherishes the cold. On this week's Gabfest. The feud, the delightful feud exploding between President Trump and his former Svengali, Steve Bannon. Then more twists and turns and swerves and U-turns and the Russia investigations. We'll talk about all of them. And then a new report says that fake news does not exist. Right, Emily? We will talk about that. No, it doesn't really say that, but it says it doesn't matter. Or maybe it doesn't even say that. Anyway, we'll decide. It may not even be about fake news. It may not it may even be. be. It may not exist. Cattle futures. It may just have been a, a, a Facebook posting about uh, Hillary Clinton's $1.8 billion house that she was building. Which is true. Uh, plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and we'll have in Slate Plus, we are going to discuss if college is worth anything, is it good for anything. So Slate Plus members get that additional bonus segment for free, but you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfest plus to sign up for slate plus so we learned some really interesting things this week learned that was in air quotes donald trump <laughs> did not want to win the presidency and did not expect to win the presidency jared kushner and ivanka trump have a pact in which only one of them can run for president and it will be her steve bannon called the meeting in which don jr brought some Russians into Trump Tower, treasonous and unpatriotic, and then said, quote, they will crack Don Jr. like an egg on national television. Donald Trump's own best friend, as well as Rupert Murdoch, are quoted as calling him an idiot or maybe a fucking idiot or maybe fucking stupid. I can't remember exactly what the phrase was, but you get the, the, the tenor of it. 
Donald Trump responded to a suggestion that he appoint John Boehner as his chief of staff by saying, who's that? Who is John Boehner? These revelations or perhaps something or other in Michael Wolf's Wolf's new book about the dawn of the Trump presidency, Fire and Fury, have prompted an enormous and incredible response. The first response has come from Donald Trump himself, who wrote an exceedingly angry note about Steve Bannon saying that when Steve Bannon lost his job, he lost his mind. Steve Bannon then also lost his funding from the Mercers who'd been funding his Breitbart operation. And then there's been a lot of discussion about whether what Wolf has reported is even possibly true. Is it, are the quotes accurate? Are these conversations, conversations that could really have occurred? Did Trump really say the things that he has attributed in this book? So John Dickerson, first of all, should we believe this book or what we've read of it. And we should so get far. a little context from Michael Wolf and his reputation, right? Not to interrupt you, John. Sure. Let's get that. But John, should we believe this book? Emily, I'll leave uh, Emily to, to um, offer the context because I think, um, well, I'll leave it to her. So <clears throat> I think you, there are individual details of it. It's interesting. I think that uh, what it might be able to say about this book is what I often feel like is possible to say about President Trump and his connection with his voters, which is the facts may be in dispute, but the truth of it is right, which is that the president's supporters often said, I don't care that he doesn't tell the truth or is, gets facts wrong. There is a thrust of him that I like and that, that I uh, want to correspond to and align myself with. And I think this book represents a description of a White House in chaos, uh, whipsawed by the impulses of the president and in which there's a lot of backstabbing, frontstabbing, rake stepping um uh, or i should say stepping on rakes um that all has been uh, fleshed out in other accounts um i certainly know it from my conversations with people in the white house and people who have witnessed the white house there are pointed moments which are interesting and we should talk about but while we assess those we need to also recognize that this does uh, echo a lot of what, uh, other things we've heard and also in the response to it both in the response to the book and to bannon the uh, impulsive uh, kind of um, uh, chaotic response in which the president says, uh, you know, about Steve Bannon. Um, uh, what did he say? Steve Bannon has nothing. To, he has nothing to do. He has the, very little to do with our historic victory. Oh no, no, no. That's oh. it. But but the, but it starts. Um, he 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 said the beginning of that statement says Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency, and that obviously isn't true. Um, and so. And then he says a variety of other things in both the statement about Bannon and then the White House statement about the book that aren't true, that um, if they aren't directly untrue, they're massively distorted spin, all of which echoes in a part what is described in the book, which is a White House in which the president creates and a campaign in which he creates his own reality and in which advisors to shape that reality um, go through an extraordinary a series of backbends and and maneuvers. In that context, it's it it feels a a piece of what we've come to understand the the Trump White House like. And then you know we have to assess those individual stories. So Emily, what makes you have doubt about the 
veracity of particular stories in this. So Michael Wolff has a reputation for taking quotes and then getting accused of not having them on the record and like sort of floating through parties and talking to people in a kind of gossipy way and then recreating scenes as if he were there. So I don't know. I sort of feel like I'm not playing to read the book because I don't really trust the like scene setting part of it. But the notion that people are um, turning on the Trump administration and on Trump himself and being brutal in their discussion of his intellect and how he handled the beginning of the presidency seems like, for the moment at least, that's kind of what we've got. And this feels to me like a, an inevitable episode in like the running reality TV show of the Trump administration, right? Where like, of course, Steve Bannon, this mercurial um, in some ways, puzzling figure is going to have a big break with the president. And of course, they're going to get back together at some later moment. And it just all seems so ginned up, like both true and also um, overwrought. Do, John, do you think that this is, as Emily says, just another episode and that that Bannon and Trump will be BFFs one of these days? Or is it a, a split that has actual significance by the political or emotional i think the the ban and trump part of it is actually the least interesting i think that the the these two figures don't follow the normal patterns of of human relationships of politics of public life so they'll bounce in and out of uh both affection and antipathy what strikes me about this book is the the central claim from wolf is that the People arrayed around the president are, I think he says, 100% certain that he cannot do the job. There are people who privately are on the president's side, some of whom were standing behind him at the tax cut ceremony of the White House testifying to what an extraordinary president he is. If that trend continues and someday it comes to pass that people decide, you know, this is true and that he cannot do the job. I'm not saying it is true, but if it comes to pass that it is true and there are those who have felt privately that it is true, how will they – how is it going to work out for them that they had this feeling about the president and they didn't do anything about it, either people who worked inside the White House or publicly? On the other hand, if this is being said about the president and it's not deserved, then it's an, then we shouldn't be taking what Wolf is writing as gospel. Nobody should want this kind of thing to be seen as gospel because you can basically smear a person in a White House because people just have an appetite for the kind of salacious. Well, although it's very Wait hard to come second. up with any countervailing evidence that he is up to the job. There's nothing that he's done. There's nothing that he's said. There's nothing he's written. There's no stories that are told about him privately by anybody that suggest he is up right. to the job. So that goes back to my first, the first of the two options that I presented, which is if that's the case, then there are a lot of people who had firsthand witness of this, who are in Congress, who are the leaders of Congress, and who have chosen not to do anything. Well, yes. I mean, it does seem like the leaders of Congress should be the most on the hook as they're watching this, and yet they have their own political calculations to make. So, when you look at the kind of Republican political dimension of this, Bannon has been trying to play a role in Republican primaries, right, in his sort of purifying of the Republican Party. The idea was that Breitbart was a kingmaker, like that Breitbart got behind certain people. This is certainly true about the rise of Jeff Sessions and made a difference in their profile and were signaling this, you know, right wing populism that was helpful to Trump. 
it doesn't look like Breitbart's withdrawing that support. I mean, it was like incredibly tame on Breitbart.com as all this book nonsense was breaking. So maybe that will prove to be a kind of paper tiger at this point. The Republican establishment was rejoicing um, on Wednesday night as all this was coming out. Senators were, you know, saying right on. And Mitch McConnell was saying that Trump was exactly right in his denunciation of Bannon, etc. Does any of that matter? Well, the split in the party that, by the way, gave rise to Donald Trump in the first place doesn't go away because of this episode. That's why I think the longer lasting part of that's interesting about this book is, you know, whether it's true or not, Wolf's claim that the president who used to repeat stories over 30 minutes now repeats them in the course of five minutes. Um, And there's a lot in the book that is that goes to this growing question uh, about his competency. And that's got to be, again, a question first raised most prominently by the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The claim is that it used to be Trump was always somebody who talked about himself, told stories about himself, and they would repeat on cycles of 30 minutes. And now it's they're repeating on cycles of five minutes, that's, suggesting some mental compromise. Right. That's, a sugge- huh. that's, the suge- that's the suggestion of the book. And there are a number of suggestions. Um, this is a, there's a Hollywood Reporter um, excerpt of the or reporting on the book. Because the book itself hasn't actually come out yet. So there was the New York Magazine piece that was an excerpt of the book. Then there's been reporting about the book. And this I'm getting from a Hollywood Reporter reporter about the book. So there are claims in the book on this front. Emily, there was one line I read the other day talking about the immediate disassociation people have made with Bannon, the the glee that you talked about with Republican senators, the fact that the Mercers seem or maybe defunding him and they take that series of events to signal to 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 argue that this shows why it's so hard for anyone to break ranks break ranks in the republican party that as soon as you do any rank breaking you are exposed to a loss of income a loss of support that it that it's become a a party which has uh, only allows a certain limited set of views and that they require full throated support of the president at all times and that you can't be an iconoclast. Does that seem right to you or is that a narrow reading and that Bannon is a, an exceptional figure? I mean, Bannon is so weirdly, he's like a firecracker going off and blowing himself up. Like why would it be a good idea for him to say these incredibly insulting and demeaning things about the people in the president's family to the point that, um, one of the, you know, president's lawyers, who Charles Harder, who happens to be also uh, the lawyer Peter Thiel hired to kill Gawker, is sending cease and desist letters to Bannon about the um, confidentiality clause he signed when he joined the campaign. I have no idea whether that contract applies to Bannon's service in the White House as opposed to the campaign, but we just have this spectacle here. I don't understand this particular aspect of Bannon because it just seems like not in his interest, except that it gets him a lot of attention. And maybe he's just as addicted to that as uh, Donald Trump is. Right. And uh, and what conveys is that he's a street fighter, take no prisoners, says what's on his mind, uh, person which people have, in, in the president's case, elevated in the priority list of personal attributes above um, 
above all others. One of the things that Steve Bannon is quoted on the record as saying in the book is this stuff about the about um, Don Jr. and treasonous that meeting that he took with a lawyer who was represented as having dirt on Hillary Clinton and represented as coming from the Russian government. And in saying that that meeting was treasonous, at the same time the president is saying this is a witch hunt and there's no proof of collusion, to have a quote from his former chief strategist saying that they should have taken it to the FBI is a significant development. Yes, that's the part I don't get. I mean, obviously, Steve Bannon really, really despises Jared and Ivanka, and I can see the political payoff in going after them as like the globalists. But the 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 accusation of treason seemed, um, yes. That's where the self-destructive part surprised me. It is it is um, a little bit Battle of Stalingrad here. It's like you want everyone to lose. Jared and Ivanka really seem appalling. Bannon is appalling. They're all appalling. Trump is obviously the most appalling of all. But it's 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 a it's a battle in which all sides should should come out wounded and bloodied and with their population starving. That would be better. The one thing that I don't. This isn't really a question. It's just a weird phenomenon of the trump administration is how many narcissists there are who are part of this administration when you think about it scaramucci carter page bannon trump himself these are people who are who are like raging clinical narcissists and it's i don't recall that as being a phenomenon of other white houses i guess because people i don't know tend to be more public service minded than they are with the trump administration it's it it does seem to me remarkable i mean there have been people before henry kissinger i think is a raging narcissist and certainly had a fine career as a white house advisor but yes it would but be the predominance, to say there'd been an the, absence of narcissism in our national the ratio of nar- the, yeah now. but the ratio of narcissists to <laughs> to uh regular people in the trump administration seems much higher than any administration i can recall before Can I go back to the point John, I think, was making earlier, which really about the president's competency, which brings in the 25th Amendment. We haven't been talking very much on the show about the 25th Amendment, but other commentators have been wondering about it for a while. It is not the most clearly and um, straightforwardly written part of the Constitution, I would argue, but it does make some provision for dealing with the disability of the president. And I've been very reluctant to see it as a real... um, like escape route for the country because it has a kind of air of a coup about it. And one imagines that it was written for a president who was like in a coma, but this well, it, it kind of was after Wilson. Right. <laughs> one imagines. And in fact it was. And so I don't know how you would apply it. I still feel that way about this president. The 25th Amendment created after Woodrow Wilson collapsed in Pueblo, Colorado, and lived the last 17 months of his presidency, basically with his wife running the presidency and he recovering from, actually, he didn't collapse. I think he had the stroke after he left the stage. But so, as you say, it does seem like it's something for where they're physically incapacitated. Um, and, and one of the reasons I've been thinking that is that it seemed like a lot of President Trump's mental attributes were extremely clear, vividly, floridly upon us when he was elected. And so that makes it harder to make the argument that anything has really changed. But I suppose what you said about like the 30 minute versus five minute cycle for repeating stories might suggest otherwise. And also because people were rolling out the 25th Amendment, like on inauguration, I mean, this is overstate, overstating the case. Probably, no, you're but on not inauguration day. It's basically true. <laughs> and so, which has always been the argument against hyperbole from 
second one because um, then if you have a case in which people who I mean in this case wouldn't Emily it'd be I mean it's it would require uh, buy-in from Republican leaders which is also the other obviously huge hurdle here um, is right, that and essentially it relies on the vice president too right yeah and we've just and again we should note we've just seen the greatest collective affirmation of the president's skills uh, and talents by both by the vice president by the majority leader by the um well basically the entire leadership of the house and the senate on the republican party just publicly testified not just to the greatness of the tax cut but specifically to the talents of the president the sustained talents being public and private of uh, his office um so that always happens in dictatorships right before the coup is the the very the sycophants the courtiers they're the ones who end up doing the doing the dirty deed anyway so i wouldn't wait but that i wouldn't count too be- much on that their public statements is mattering if they end up deciding they want to do it i don't think they yeah, will i don't think they're that, going to but. right but the day that mike pence flips it's going to be scary to watch it happen because it's going to be like it's going to feel like a dictatorship it's going to feel like you know newspeak like but right well and we are in the fantastic we are in the land of the fantastic it's not gonna happen we are right we are in the land of the fantastical but since we are in that land that's the sound of the fantastical land in which things that won't come to pass happen don't you think emily that because the barriers are so high as they rightfully should be to overturn the will of the people that were it to come to pass the ascension by the vice president would almost be um, pro forma, because whatever, whatever will have happened will have been so public and so hand forcing that um, that it actually w- that it'll be just like, OK, everybody kind of goes through the steps. I mean, an a- yeah. so it would require a president. Let's take it outside of the specific for a moment in a situation in which the president's party controls both houses of Congress. It would require a president to actually collapse and be medically, you know, diagnosed. I think the bigger question is. Can they figure out a way not to get him to run for a second term so that, A, the country doesn't have to suffer through this, B, he doesn't have to continue doing a job for which he is so obviously ill-equipped, and C, they don't have to be strapped to him in 2020, which I don't think they want to be. That's the hard part when you're dealing with somebody who is as narcissistic and and ego-driven as Trump is can, can he be veered onto another course? Because they're not going to, they are not going to depose. Great question. They're not going to depose. Right. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better. With unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. 
Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Russia investigation or investigations swerved and veered again over the past several weeks. Reports suggest that the House inquiry into Russian election meddling is nearing some kind of conclusion with huge divisions between the committee Republicans and Democrats and the possibility of two reports being issued. One of the huge divisions is over the question of whether, as the Republicans would like to, whether to focus on uh, misdeeds of Democrats or possible misdeeds of the FBI in the course of its own investigation is whether that should be a focus. That's one big question. There are other big questions about whether all the right witnesses have been talked to and subpoenaed. Meanwhile, uh, we have an overall stepping up of attacks on the FBI from some Republicans and stepping up of attacks on the independence of Robert Mueller. There appear to be efforts to undermine Mueller's deep investigation to the Trump campaign. And then a third sort of thread of all of this is there now New York Times is reporting that the impetus or one original impetus for the FBI investigation of Trump appears to be the loose lips of George Papadopoulos, who drunk blabbed to an Australian diplomat about dirt that the Trump campaign had on uh, from Russians about the Clinton campaign. So and the point of this Papadopoulos um, line is that it counters the the previous con- argument that some conservatives were making that it was the Democratic funded steel dossier that had instigated FBI interest. Anyway, there are a lot of different threads going on here, Emily, any one of which you pull and you kind of end up uh, three weeks later uh, drunk in, in, in Taos, New Mexico, like unsure where you got there, how you got there and, and you know, with a, a body of a, a dead Russian agent uh, lying on top of you. So, Or as I like to call it, the weekend. <laughs> so... What? Um, why is this House investigation wrap up? Why is that important? Why does it matter? There's so many other investigations. Why does it matter that the the House investigation is wrapping up quickly and that there's so much disagreement over it? I mean, it's an embarrassment for Congress that it's done such a not credible job of investigating, and that this question, which you know should not be drenched in partisan division, but is about whether the Russians meddled in the election and how safe our electoral processes can be made for the next time. That's been just completely subsumed by this fight. And it seems like Devin Nunes, the California congressman, has been particularly obstructionist and impossible in all of this. At one point, he was under an ethics investigation, but then he was cleared and he never really gave up control of the committee. It just seems like an embarrassment all around. And Adam Schiff, who's the ranking Democrat, has tried hard to at least make public and transparent what this committee is not doing, but it just seems useless. I myself have given up on it. More and more, however, one feels that if we're ever going to really understand what happened, it is going to be because of Robert Mueller and his continued work. And every day that I wake up and he is still doing his job is a good day, in my view. I don't know what he's going to find. And I think it's, I don't care, like whatever it is, I just want him to finish. But it is very hard to imagine that President Trump is going to let Robert Mueller indict members of his family. And one does feel like that is very palpably on the table now. These committees were supposed to um, deal with the question of Russian interference in the election, how it happened, how to stop it from happening, where the failures were in the Intelligence Committee. So that's one substantive part of the work that they were supposed to do, which separate and apart from the investigative part 
um, is really important. And if they don't do that is a real failure because you have that's one in which you have this bipartisan consensus that it needs to be done. Then you get to the political question, which is, have they been doing and are they even able to do the kind of investigative work that this requires, which was always uh, troubling because these are not investigators. um, And and so it was always going to be difficult. The Senate's doing a better job than the House. But I, I feel like I come back to a point I was making in the previous conversation, which is at the end of the day, there is going to be Mueller's going to produce something. And that will be the fact record against which the performance of the Congress will be measured. And so both the specific members of the committee who said and believed in various things will have something against which to measure and their leaders who allow them to do or not do what they're supposed to do in these um, in these committees will be on the hook for not letting them go forward and finding true wrongdoing or letting them go too far because Mueller comes out and says, well, there's nothing here. There's going to be a day of reckoning. Why do you guys think both of you have have discussed what is the critical issue in, in this investigation or all these investigations, which is that you have a hostile foreign government engaged in what appears to be an incredibly successful campaign to disrupt, mislead, propagandize, confuse, uh, interfere with the integrity of an American election. And completely independent of any possible collusion that there might have been between President Trump's campaign and any Russians, there is very little doubt that this was an enormous effort by a hostile foreign government, which has had a cascade of really detrimental effects on American democracy. And it is sad. And I don't think this is just the Republicans' uh, plain possum on it. I also feel like Democrats, because they've so focused on collusion, have also had bear some culpability here. It is really sad that there isn't a deeper national outrage and consensus and work to try to understand what was done and fight what was done and ensure that it doesn't happen again. And that these all these investigations have lost lost the trail, which is that that is the path. That's the thing they should care about. Why do you think it is that that they've done such a poor job of interesting Americans and even interesting themselves in this fundamental question? Because there was no way to talk about that that didn't make President Trump into like an angry bear in a cage because it questioned the integrity and legitimacy of his electoral victory, which is like the thing he's the most ego driven about. And so Republicans responding to him had no way to ask those questions that felt politically safe to them. And so they didn't ask them. And um, I guess you can throw the Democrats under the bus too for obsessing over collusion, but I don't really think that's like the main show here. The other thing I wonder about is whether um, every election is different. And yes, the Russians will be back, as um, I think James Clapper has famously said, but that they'll be back in some different way, that the technology morphs, um, and that what just as important as understanding what happened is figuring out what they're likely to do next. One thing that bothers me tremendously is that nobody's really talk seriously, or um, that maybe that's an exaggeration, but I don't see on the horizon legislation about trying to change the way political ads online are regulated, which seems like such a key part of this, that all of this um, 
some of it was fake postings, but some of it was paid for advertising that wasn't subject to any of the rules we have for political ads. It, it, those sorts of things kind of swirling around are what um, bother me the most about this. I have uh, three things I'd like to say. First is the Papadopoulos story, going back to your point, David, affirms what the president still is reluctant or to admit or sometimes denies, which is that the Republican that the that the Russians were actively trying to push this dirt on Hillary Clinton, which later came out through WikiLeaks. We also know that from the um, the meeting or we, we have strong evidence that that was the case, that they were trying to find an entry point in this meeting uh, at Trump Tower with the president's son. So in addition to the other things that the Papadopoulos story in The New York Times shows, including, by the way, the other thing that, that it shows is that there is some conflict between The New York Times reporting at the time, which said there was no evidence of any connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now, the New York Times is reporting that the FBI did have that have that evidence and was and was curious about it and investigating it. And that's now has us in part where we are today. But that that's one thing about that story is that it shows that this was, in fact, the Russians were up to this, not that. We need any more evidence of that based on the, the months and months and months in which intelligence officials past and present have, have present have claimed that. But it's just learning this piece of the story tells us that other thing. I think Emily's right about the collusion. I think you're both right, actually. There has been an excessive uh, focus on collusion in a kind of sloppy way. You know, the obstruction story has always to me been uh, dynamic and more explosive because it's the one in which the president plays a role. Nobody's ever put the president in the center of the drama on the collusion question. And the final point I would make is, and we'll maybe we should just wait and talk about this in the next topic. But um, I guess let that. I'll do that. I'll wait till the next topic oh, for my third point, wow. and everybody will wait, have to just collude to no, share. It's gonna. They're gonna have to wait. No, but she has I'm a she has a response to percept other things we've talked about. <laughs> we can't forget about money laundering because both in the Papadopoulos story and in other reporting this week and in Paul Manafort's discussion of what's going on, money laundering is looming large. That's also true about the Michael Wolff book and Steve Bannon's portrayal of what this investigation is about. And that is the kind of thread that Mueller could be pulling on where there been, there's been reporting of subpoena of Deutsche Bank records that is a tantalizing piece of this. Uh, it just, that seems like a direction in which this investigation could go that could implicate the president or Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr., who knows, but it, it feels very tantalizing that right. it's out there. Two, yeah, two, two points on that. One is money laundering, of course, makes sense because they didn't expect to win the election. If you don't expect to win the election, presumably you're planning for what you're going to get out of having run. And and we do know that Trump is constantly looking to gain some kind of edge there and money laundering, getting himself advantage on some set of deals is presumably a, a thing he would look for. What, one point I want to make about um, the Papadopoulos story overall and the and how it connects to the collusion allegations, which is if they were colluding, and I think they were, I, I think they were, they did such a bad job of it, <laughs> which is that you have this kind of no, nobody Nick in Papadopoulos going, he... Let's not, let, that's a little, two months on the Ben Carson campaign, uh, it does not make him a nobody Nick. And he and he finds, you know, some, some random academic, some half-baked academic with some vague ties, like to Malta or something, <laughs> Cyprus, Malta. <laughs> I think I, with with a, like a day of Googling and a couple of phone calls, could find somebody better to collude with within the Putin administration. I, who know no, no Russians, know no Russian, think just a little bit of basic collusion 
Googling would have would have gotten a better set of outcomes or better contacts. It just seems like he's gone about it in a really dumb, half-assed way. I totally agree. I've always felt like the biggest obstacle to collusion is just how shambolic it has all seemed kind of on both ends. And while this was obviously a campaign that was highly disorganized and was pulling from quarters that had not, you know, not because the most of the Republican establishment had fled and was fleeing from Donald Trump still just as a kind of, I mean, they were able to do lots and lots of things, including win the nomination. And you'd think if they were colluding, they would have been, it would have been a little bit more present. Also, some of the meetings that then later took place and during the transition happened in a way where there was no like you would, it, it was like getting to know you meetings, which you presume wouldn't have happened if there was already collusion going underway. But the rebuttal to that is, well, we haven't seen what the data analytics people were doing and that and that if there was a relationship there to trade information to try to connect Russians with the, the targeting and mapping the campaign itself was doing, that that might not have been known by everybody and maybe a, a, a kind of collusion that we've yet to see. So maybe there's uh, – but I totally agree with you, David. Well, except we sort of assume some level of coordination and like it's I have also been like, well, why are the Russians continually trying with different people? Like clearly they're knocking on eight different doors 10 times. And if there's this smooth glide path that they've all figured out, why bother? But I think it's entirely likely that different people were doing different things didn't even know. And uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, we'll but see. None of, I get I totally. Yes, totally. I, but it continues to amaze me that none of them did it very well. Like that it just it, it, every particular episode we hear of has a has a Keystone Cops quality to it that is surprising. You think you feel like if 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 you feel like if the Trump, if the Obama campaign. Well, the, this is why in our Slate Plus segment on is why is college necessary? Collusion is really only taught at some of your more esoteric uh, liberal arts institutions. And really the the drawdown in collusion education has been one of true. the. It's all, well, it's all because everyone's doing STEM instead of That's collusion right. these days. It's That's a, right. It's a real problem. In humanities. Exactly. We need more collusion majors for sure. Okay, moving on. Comes this week a very interesting study by political scientist Andrew Guess, Brendan Nyan, and Jason Reifler. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, Jason, about fake news. So the three political scientists examined web traffic data collected from a national sample of Americans from October 7th to November 14th, 2016. So in the heart of the presidential election campaign. And in order to see what kind of fake news consumption there was, which platforms helped spread it. And they had some very interesting findings. So apparently fake news doesn't matter, right, Emily? (laughs) What was the idea? Wide but shallow impact. So lots of people are looking (laughs) at fake news. That's been my career. (laughs) Isn't that that the line? uh, Whose line is that about? He's like the 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 river of his great home state of Nebraska, the Platte River of his home state of Nebraska. My way, that three thousand miles wide and several inches deep. It's a great line. Anyway, uh, about go ahead. whom you don't remember. So the idea is that a significant percentage of the electorate is exposed to fake news, but it's a tiny percentage of their overall news diet. So it looks like it doesn't matter a whole lot, or at least that people have lots of other information coming in. So that was one of the findings in this paper by um, Brendan Nyhan at Dartmouth and a couple of his colleagues. Um, but then another um, sort of less cheery, reassuring finding was that 
when people do read, go to fake news sites on Facebook, they don't often see a fact check, or at least the researchers couldn't find any evidence of them directly seeing a fact check that would refute that fake news. So the problems going on in the way that Facebook is spreading fake news seem like they are significant ones. Um, Facebook's like monkeying around with whatever it's doing, but I don't think we can trust Facebook to uh, seriously address this problem. I guess what I wonder about this is whether two things. So one thing I worry about is that the real problem with fake news is that then it just becomes a sort of puff of smoke in which everyone who is disposed to not like a piece of real news says like, well, maybe it's not true. And there's just a kind of destabilization of reporting and information going on that has more to do with the term and its obsessive use. And Trump is, you know, does this all the time. And so that's the real concern. So that's like point one. And then I guess point two is whether if fake news has an effect, it's because people who are already primed by mostly right-wing media, but sometimes left-wing conspiracy media, to believe whatever the little drop of fake news is, and it just adds like a little extra hot sauce. So this obviously has um, effects with with respect to Pizzagate. You know that the fake news sent somebody with an automatic rifle to a uh, to find um, the pedophilia ring in the basement of a pizza place in Washington D.C. that doesn't even have a basement. So there's that effect, which is real, which is outside of the election. The election effect, I saw some coverage of this suggesting, well, maybe then this whole Russian thing is overblown. I think that obviously uh, leaves out two pieces, at least two pieces. One, the WikiLeaks, um, Russia-inspired WikiLeaks dump had a huge effect on the election. And that wasn't that's not under the category of fake news. That's that to me is what is the more and this is what I was going to mention in our previous topic. That's the bigger danger to our democracy and our election, which is that the Russians didn't, it wasn't so much fake news that they had to deal with. They took advantage of both real news and our, the way we cover news and the way we cover elections to have an effect on the election and the way, and the way it was covered. And I think that you could argue, and perhaps I will argue, perhaps I am now currently arguing that the most important thing that we could do to fix the way we go through elections is to change the proportionality with which we assess candidates and events in elections, which has obviously been something that I've spent quite a lot of time banging on about over the years. But if we had a better understanding of the presidency and of what we need our presidents to do uh, and and ported a little of that into the actual campaign process, maybe we wouldn't be susceptible to um, the flashy but not um, totally dominant stories that the Russians clearly took advantage of with WikiLeaks. Huzzah. I align myself with that extremely goo-goo philosophy of john dickerson i want to make two quick points one is just to also uh double down on what you said a second ago emily which is that the problem of fake news is not the existence of the stories themselves is that it the way it allows politicians and then voters in general to call into question truth and that it contaminates media trust generally people stop believing anything they don't want to believe because it's so that becomes this charge that can be thrown at it. And so that's the bigger problem is not so much that they are convinced by the dumb fake news stories is that it allows them to dismiss factual stories that are contrary to beliefs that they dispute. The second thing question I'm interested in is why do you think it is? And I have a theory about this, that the fake news as a category of 
information, this set of false stories, exists for politics and entertainment, but it basically doesn't exist in sports, very little in financial news, and not in things like the weather. You do, there isn't fake weather news, right? People well, but people have no, for a long time blamed the weather for the unpredictability and um, margin of error in weather. They've said, oh, you said there was going to rain. And the weatherman would say, well, no, I said there was an 80 percent chance. But, it was but no, there's no there's no industry. Also, putting climate out, change. Is well, climate change is place. different. Climate change is different. Climate change is different. I'm, I'm talking about weather. I'm talking about. And I think okay. the climate the thing, is different from weather. Everybody, I think, I think, Sorry. I think, I think the, I think the key things there are is that in weather, in the immediate weather forecast, in finance mm. and in sports, people essentially have money riding on it. There is, yes, the, good and point. and yeah. therefore the the value of having actually accurate, trusted information is extremely high. Whereas in politics and in entertainment, it, it people their entertainment they're followed for sport mostly. If there's inaccurate political information, it doesn't affect your business life. It doesn't affect but what crop you're going to plant. Ridiculous. It does. It does. Right. But it does, but not directly. But the, yeah. Yes, it's indirect. And I would add, I would, I would shave off just a few percentage points of what you're saying, which is that that certainly I remember from covering business, um, which was some time ago, but lots and lots of people in business would say the coverage of this is awful. Now that's different than what you're saying, which is like the actual production of fake news. Um, but I, and, but I would say, um, uh, that there is, I mean, there's not the super precision and there is a lot of like fraud and, and, you know, monkeying with balance sheets and stuff that companies do to make themselves look better monkeying with, you know, car companies that monkey with their, with yes. their emission standards and all that. So, um, but I think the, 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 your general point, which is that the, the stakes are higher for precision, um, is true. Right. I mean, I guess the other obvious point to make about the weather at sports is that you can actually see the results immediately, right? Like you look out your window. I mean, maybe I'm being a little too literal minded and small bore in my no, I think you're right. This, but I like think that's you exactly can, right. Like, in fact, there is like snow and wind raging outside my window right now, and I am not going to be uh, confused about that. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. I bought myself some moonshine, which I'd never bought before. Real moonshine or, or like the new stuff that they call moonshine? I'm sure it's the new stuff they call moonshine because it was sold at a farmer's market. Yeah. So, But it, 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 it it's delicious. It's, it's very good. Why is, what's, why is moonshine, uh, John, I feel like because you're an alcoholic fake Southerner, you ought to know this. <laughs> Is uh, so unfair. What, oh my God. why is either unfair uh, or is, perfectly <laughs> accurate? Is what way is moonshine similar to vodka? I feel I like mean, it's clear and kind of tasteless, like vodka, right? Well, it's oh well. The, I uh, so the only fake posture I'll take on this is that my um, the late del- beloved and um, wonderful man Dickie Sharp, who is my wife's uncle, gave us some actual moonshine many many years ago and uncle bobby his brother brought us some of i think i I can't remember it's actual moonshine or the stuff they sell in in stores but that stuff tasted it was the it was you drink it and you call you know you you can't swallow it i mean it was it was basically the kind of stuff that i mean in this case we didn't drink enough to find out but you know home distilled it was the stuff that may used to make people go blind so that had a very strong that was not like vodka that was more it felt more to me like you know um like scotch or or maybe it's just my reaction to scotch but um yeah that's that's you that's the stuff you don't bring near an open flame um 
Well, so if I'm blind next week, we know, yeah. we know who to blame. Uh, so what you but, had is probably smoother. Yes, and it's more, very Much smooth. more distilled. Very yeah, yes. yeah. So what is your uh, moon moonshiner, John Dickerson? Oh, so my moonshiner is that um, is about the uh, Nigerian prince Michael N E U. So new maybe he resides in in Louisiana in a town of Louisiana, and he of course is not from Nigeria, but he uh, is facing two hundred and sixty nine counts of wire fraud and one count of money laundering. He's a sixty seven year old Louisiana man, and he is your Nigerian official who claims that he's been the beneficiary of a will and that he'll get a million dollars if you send him uh, your bank account and some moonshine. And um, uh, anyway, he is the he was busted after an eighteen month investigation as one of those Nigerian princes that we've all heard from in our email inbox. He lives 33 miles northeast of New Orleans. I'm bummed. But maybe I you always... can still give him your money and he'll multiply it. Right, exactly. The game is still on. It's just slightly changed the uh, parameters. He's got a million dollars, but he's temporarily indisposed and needs you to hold on to it for a little while before he's able to be at liberty again. I thought a lot of those Nigerian uh, princes were actually Nigerians or West Africans, at least. Just and I'm disappointed. Entrepreneurial Nigerians, yeah. not necessarily royalty. Yeah, not not royalty generally. Emily, when you're having your moonshine and coke, as you do every uh, every couple hours, what will you be chattering about? I read two really good books over break, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. And if you have not read either of these books, I really recommend just reading them one after the other. They're both short. They sort of speak to each other. It was like a great week of Jasmine Ward. So go do that. I am paying attention acutely to two stories this week that we didn't talk about. One is this threat to the census that uh, the Justice Department is talking about adding a question, asking people about citizenship, which like every single person who has ever worked on the census or or studied it says this could really depress results that people who are undocumented won't answer. We won't get an accurate count. We'll end up having to spend hundreds of millions more dollars trying to make up for this. It is just like a punitive and anti-immigrant proposal, and I really, really hope it dies a quick death. Also really interesting is the sudden demise of the Commission on Voter Integrity or whatever ridiculous trumped up, uh, excuse me, name that it had. It, it suddenly tanked this week in the middle of the Steve Bannon news, maybe because it was um, something Steve Bannon backed, but it wasn't really a Steve Bannon show. It was a Chris Kobach show along with some of the people who have been the most addicted to the voter fraud myth. And so then there was a lot of celebration of the end of this commission, which didn't accomplish anything and was like jogged by 8 million lawsuits and lots of controversy and just utter ham-handedness from day one. But the idea in this order Trump signed was to send its work over to the Department of Homeland Security. And I agree with the Secretary of State of Maine, who was on this commission, that that is a really alarming proposition because we will not know exactly what is going on over at DHS in terms of these ideas of cross-checking voter rolls and purging people and potentially discriminating against people with foreign surnames, which is something that has happened in states like Florida. So I think it's really important to just keep watching that. At one point, Chris Kobach was floated as a name for some undersecretary position over at the Department of Homeland Security. And that seems like a really bad place for this whole strain of voter suppression to go. Okay. Nora Krug has a wonderful lovely story in the Washington Post this week about John Rosenberg and Lucy 
Kalanithi. So John Rosenberg is the widower of a woman named Nina Riggs who died of cancer recently. And as she was dying of cancer, Nina wrote a book called The Bright Hour, which was a critically acclaimed book about her dying. And then uh, Paul Kalanithi, Lucy Kalanithi, is the widow of Paul Kalanithi, who is the doctor who wrote a wonderful book, which I read called When Breath Becomes Air, which was his account of his dying, which came out a couple of years before The Bright Hour. So as... Um, as Nina Riggs was dying, she was in communication with Lucy Kalanithi, who was at that point had already written her book. And, and Lucy and Nina became friends. And Nina, as she was dying, introduced Lucy to her husband, John Rosenberg. And now, some months and, and years after the deaths of their spouses, these two have fallen in love. And so it was a really lovely story about their how they came to, to fall in love, uh, how in mourning and in grieving, uh, they also found love with each other. And, and, uh, it's a really, it's a really heartwarming story. If you guys haven't read it, you should. I'm going to go read it. That sounds wonderful. It is yeah. wonderful. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, the always excellent and never moonshine addled Jocelyn Frank. <laughs> Izzy Road is our researcher. <laughs> Izzy may well be moonshine research, moonshine, moonshine addled. <laughs> you may be. He's doing. I'm definitely moonshine addled because Izzy's doing burden. so much research that the, the moonshine is the only the only respite from all the research we impose. <laughs> <laughs> Please uh, follow us on Twitter at at Slate Gabfest. It's a great Twitter feed, and we are constantly um, updating various things, starting conversations there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Happy New Year. Talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.